Father, we've lifted our voice to declare your place. The stone has been rolled away. The grave is empty. And the throne of heaven is occupied. Teach us what it means to live in that reality under your lordship. And as we declare that in song, we ask too that our, our lives would do the same, with the same kind of clarity. That the world would see your steadfast love within us. That that would be what leads our testimony. They would see the way that we live and how we treat one another and that your gospel would be proclaimed in and through that. You are Lord. Be Lord of even more of us. Even more of who we are in every part of our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you believe that God endorses Donald Trump? Or do you believe that God opposes Donald Trump? Yeah, it's going to get real quiet. My guess is if I were to continue along this line of questioning and maybe probed a little bit deeper and asked three more questions, I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, if we would begin to evoke more emotion within ourselves than we did three days ago on Easter Sunday. And if we watch the ways that we get riled up around political conversations, if there's something in that that says more about where our hopes truly lie than any one of us want to admit. Is there a shrinking of the lordship of Jesus in the way that we place a disproportionate amount of hope in a platform, a campaign, or any one human individual? Is there any place in your life and mine where we become more ugly than when we start to talk about politics? And is that saying something about where our deepest emotions and our deepest hopes for change and transformation actually lie? Politics is like this tar baby that Christians play with that we can't help but have a mess left on our hands when we're done. And this applies whether you find yourself leaning a little more to the left side of the aisle or to the right. And as you listen to each one of us with our own political leanings and inclinations, it feels like one half of us read this page of the Bible, ignoring what's on the other side, and then the other side reads this side, ignoring what's on the other side, conveniently enough as it fits our own personal political agenda, employing Jesus as some sort of political wingman, campaign buddy potential endorser of our ideas. 
Is there any place where you and I become more blind to our own misgivings, to our own ugliness, than when we start playing with this tar baby and getting wrestled up in it? Maybe, maybe when the last election was done, regardless of where you sit on a political spectrum, we didn't end up with the wrong candidate, we ended up with the wrong gospel. But you see, this isn't entirely new to God's people either, and we find ourselves in a long, long tradition here. The passion narrative starts and Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's recorded in Luke like this. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Open up our eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Jerusalem didn't just bet on the wrong horse. They bet on the wrong animal. It wasn't a war horse coming into Jerusalem to deliver them from political oppression and opposition. It was the Prince of Peace riding on a donkey. And I wonder, I just wonder, if we're continuing to make the wrong wager time and time again in our own lives, politically and elsewhere, when we begin to put our hopes in something a little bit different. And every time we do... When we, want to get, when we get pulled into this game of, of power rather than service, when we begin to employ the idea of Jesus um, as a Savior and not fully as one whose lordship we're falling under, when we ch- separate his salvific work and his lordship in our lives, if that's when we start, end up becoming a little bit ugly. In 2012, David Kinnaman wrote this book on Christian and referenced it at a couple different times in this series where we've talked about why people are leaving the church and why that matters and how we have to take a long, hard look at what the church looks like in the eyes of the world around us. And in this top list of descriptors of why people find the church so offensive, making the top five is that we were too involved in politics. And I wonder if now in 2018, six years later, that would move a little even further to the left on that chart. I wonder, what has it done to us? What do we look like? And are we still in the same place as Jerusalem was back then? Do we want Jesus' salvation and not his ideas? When Jesus came before Pilate, this was part of the discussion back and forth with him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. That's why when Peter lifts up a sword ready to go to battle the way everybody else in the world would have done it, when you face the opposition, Jesus puts his sword away and then heals the very one who is his enemy in that moment. Pilate is essentially asking him, and let me paraphrase this part of the story, 
Are you or are you not, Jesus, fighting for a seat at this table? To which Jesus very much replies, I am not fighting for a seat at this table or the scraps that fall from it. What you have failed to understand, Pilate, is that this table is in one room inside of my father's house. And the games that you are so used to playing and the paradigms that you live within are so different than what I came to bring. Some theologians read passages like this and say, Jesus wasn't political at all. Other people say Jesus could not have been more political. Do you love how Jesus does that? How he confuses us? Drawing us into a dependence on him and not our ability to figure him out. Brian Zahn in his book of Farewell to Mars says this, the problem is this, when we separate Jesus from his ideas for an alternative social structure, we inevitably succumb to the temptation to harness Jesus for our ideas, thus conferring upon our human political ideas an assumed divine endorsement. We do this mostly unconsciously, but we do it. I've done it. And the result is that we reduce Jesus to being the Savior who guarantees our reservation in heaven while using him to endorse our own ideas about how to run the world. Man, I was cut to the heart when I read that. I thought, how many times have I not done exactly that? When Pilate stands before the crowd, he offers them the Barabbas bet. Choose your hope, Israel. Choose your horse and bet on it. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? And we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He had already drawn the blood of his enemy fighting for. He had murdered for his cause. See, that's how everybody else fights to get their way in the world. And the paradigm that Jesus is offering is something that is so altogether different. You will not know me by my political platform. You will not know me by my, my, my argumentative rhetoric. You will not know me by my foreign policy. You'll know me by the enduring love of my Father, which is being lived out and will be my character lived out through my people. So Pilate's asking them, go ahead and take your bet. Like, what do you think is going to bring about your change? Where are you placing your hope? The insurrectionist who's promising you freedom? By the shedding of others' blood? Or what we find out is the Prince of Peace who proclaims a gospel of enemy love and instead sheds his own blood. It's the Barabbas bet. You see, and you and I continue to get faced with this bet most days of our lives. In this moment or in this moment of opposition or you face an argument with somebody else, uh, will you choose the power over approach the way the world has always done this? Or will you choose the wisdom and the way of Jesus and the gospel of enemy love? 
Will you lean into the wisdom of the Prince of Peace and choose a different game? When I read the Sermon on the Mount, that's what I read Jesus teaching again and again. Change the game. Change the game. You don't have to play by everybody else's rules. Change the game. You don't have to believe this candidate's idea of how change and transformation will come or this one. What if there's actually an alternative? What if the curiously different, beautiful third way that Jesus offers repeatedly into each and every situation, offering the answer that nobody expected was even on the table as an option, still exists for you and for me? You don't have to roll over and play dead. You don't have to get up and fight. The gospel of enemy love is that which changes. On a day when Martin Luther King is remembered 50 years later, we ask ourselves the question whether or not we believe in the same principles that he believed in where he actually just simply asked the question again and again before this country, where do you think change actually comes from? Do you think that hate can drive out more hate? Or can only love do that? And offered a beautiful picture and an inspiring vision for the church of what that could be. And so we have to ask ourselves those same questions. The passage from Luke 19 where Jesus says, if you had only known, if you had only known the peace that I'm actually offering in this moment. See, because it was only one generation later in 70 AD where all of those words came to pass and Jerusalem was brought to the ground. It got the war of independence it had asked for. It got the war that Barabbas had promised. It got the option that he was laid out on the table. And Jerusalem lost bitterly and brutally. So it's strange in all of these things, but as we stand today, right, trying to figure this out, we've been talking all semester um, in chapel about how it is that people are leaving, why it matters, and one of the grand narratives going on in our culture and within Christendom and evangelical America today is that it's, the enemy is atheism, and it's, and it's pluralism, and it's, and it's all of this, this post-Christian culture talk, and, and so we long for a world that's already passed us by. But go all the way back to the first time when this had happened, the most significant way, when the king of kings wasn't recognized for what he came to offer. Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified, and the people got exactly what they asked for. But it wasn't what they needed. I wonder if our prayers and even what we ask for aren't actually what we need. If the lordship of Jesus really does have to have its own way, that we don't really need a wingman, we need a Lord. We need an alternative set of ideas and to come back before the wisdom of Christ and submit ourselves to it. That enemy of atheism, Barbara Brown Taylor, talks about it like this. Going back to looking at the passion narrative, Jesus was not killed by atheism and anarchy. He was brought down by law and order allied with religion, which is always a deadly mix. 
Beware those who claim to know the mind of God and are prepared to use force, if necessary, to make others conform. Beware those who cannot tell God's will from their own. Temple police are always a bad sign. When chaplains start wearing guns and hanging out at the sheriff's office, watch out. Someone is about to have no king but Caesar. Israel cried out in the Old Testament, give us a king like the other nations, and they got it, and it was awful. Free Barabbas, give us him. And it was awful. And so we have to ask ourselves where our hope lies. What we keep banking on, where do you really believe that transformation will come from? A reinforcement and a stronger version of your own ideas? A real tactical strategy? Or submission to the one who already demonstrated the ability to lie down his life for us? So what is our relationship to the state? I want you to hear me well in the middle of this. I pray that we unleash out of this place amazing politicians. But understand this full well, whether you're engaging politics on Facebook or whether you're actually standing in an office debating a bill, this is a hard place to be. And if ever there was a knife's edge between being in the world and not of it, maybe it's our involvement as Christians in politics where church and state can potentially become strange bedfellows where some of the greatest dangers arise, as Barbara Brown Taylor warns us. It comes up in this passage. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And then my favorite part of the whole text. And they were amazed at him. They come before him with two choices. And notice who it is that's colluding in the middle of this. The Herodians and the Pharisees, those who represent the temple and those who represent the state. The church and the state are together offering this temptation before Jesus, trying to separate him, leaning in, watching his words, seeing if he'll dig his own grave in the middle of this. And Jesus' answer is so simple. Whatever the world wants to put their mark upon, go ahead and give back to them. But the inverse is also true. What God has put his image and inscription upon his children give back to him. The most valuable things in this entire world are that which God has put his image upon. And I think this is what Paul's drawing on in Romans 13. When he's talking about where you owe revenue, give revenue. Where you owe taxes, give taxes. Where you owe honor, give honor. But where you owe lordship to Christ, give that. And in this precarious place where we're trying to figure out how to live as Christians... In a place where we want to and need to be involved in the political arena and how this country works. And how whatever country you end up getting called into and living works. And yet at the same time having a lordship of Christ that is over all of that. How, how do you live in that space and do that well? It's a question that we have to ask and I think the rest of the world is telling us right now, looking at us as Christians in, in, in this country, 
how that you guys are going to do this as a generation is of incredible importance to your evangelistic message. And whether or not the world will know us by our love will get played out on this stage as well. On political platforms. And so do we know first and foremost where our hope lies? So that it's an Eastern and a celebration of who God is and the reigning king on the throne of thrones that demands our utmost allegiance, loyalty, and worship so that everything else falls under that. Can each of us answer that? Can each of us declare that together? And then begin to make sense of the rest of it. Because we can still give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We pray with me. Father God, it's hard being your disciples in this world sometimes. We find ourselves at odds with others over ways that we want to see change happen in our world. God, teach us how to have differences with each other well, to honor your image in others as we do it, to let the world around us see that our primary hope lies not in any one political agenda, but in the offering of your Son and in his resurrection, in his almighty power and in who he is. And Father, we thank you that that is ours, that that truth, that that hope is ours. And so, Father, we pray that we would learn how to have those conversations in our culture and in our world differently, that we would look beautiful, that we would accurately reflect not only the fact that you are our Savior, but that you are our Lord. Teach us to pray for our leaders. Teach us to answer calls to step into those spaces when you do speak. And teach us to look like you all the while in a gospel of enemy love, guided by the Prince of Peace, laying down our own lives in order that we might find them, just like you showed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you rise and receive a parting blessing? Children of God, God himself has put his inscription, his image upon you. It's what you reflect each and every day in this world. You were made to be a reflection of that and to be a beautiful embodiment of his love and his peace and his ideas. Live them well. Go in peace to love and serve the reigning king. Amen.